Today, we're talking about racism in the American church, a hard topic that we need to address, not just because of the days that we are living in, but because as believers, we need to have integrity before God. He is the one who calls us to truth, so we want to humbly come before him as we begin today. Let us pray. Holy and loving God, we bow down before you in the name of Jesus, your son who continues to be our teacher in all matters of life and practice. We ask for your wisdom on this day we have dedicated to you. Give us ears to hear your spirit speaking to us in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Our scripture today is from Acts 10. It's the narrative of Peter and Cornelius. Luke tells us the story and then reiterates parts of it twice. To highlight its importance as it tells of the first Gentile convert in the early church. Since it's the longest single narrative in the book of Acts, I'm going to recap some of it before we read. If you have a Bible handy, you can follow along while I, while I tell it. In the seaport town of Caesarea, there lived a man named Cornelius, who was an Italian centurion, an officer in the Roman army in charge of other soldiers for his day job. Caesarea was the center of Roman administration and a show place for their culture. It had been rebuilt by Herod the Great and named after Caesar Augustus with a temple dedicated to him. The Jews hated it and talked about it as if it weren't really part of Judea. It was a place of riots and unrest between Jews and Gentiles culminating in most of the Jewish population being massacred in the year 66 during a war between the two groups. This is where God chose, specifically, intentionally, to bring two men together, very different men, in his name. Cornelius uh, was a person who, although a Gentile, believed in God and followed in his ways. We don't know if he converted to Judaism or if he simply worshipped privately. We see that he prayed all the time and was, and was generous um, in his giving. An angel appears to Cornelius in a vision saying, Cornelius, God has heard your prayers and received your offerings, which have ascended as a memorial to him. Think about that. Think about how our prayers and our offering and our worship might be an art piece, a memorial before God, a tangible altar to the living God. What a beautiful picture. Cornelius is told to send for Peter, which he does. 34 miles away in Joppa, Peter also is in prayer, also has a vision where he sees a large sheet being lowered on all four corners with all manner of animals on it. Three times, the voice of the Lord tells him to get up and to kill and to eat. And three times, Peter tells the Lord no, because he has never eaten anything forbidden in the scriptures in his life. 
Could you imagine hearing a message from God while in prayer and saying no? <laughs> Sometimes this happens. We're very close to the Lord, yet we're not sure. We want to be fully obedient when we hear what it is he wants us to do. While Peter was puzzling over this vision, the men sent by Cornelius show up and he goes down to see them and they tell him that they have been sent to bring Peter back to their boss, whom they clearly love. They tell Peter that Cornelius is an upright man and he's God-fearing and how the whole Jewish nation speaks highly of him. Who wouldn't want these guys on their team? Peter goes to Caesarea the next day where Cornelius has assembled relatives and friends in anticipation of this meeting. He bows down at Peter's feet and Peter says, no, I am only human. Please get up. And Peter plainly says, it's not really religiously lawful for uh, me to be here, but God has told me, Peter says, to not consider anyone he has made to be unclean. And so to answer Peter's question of why he is there, Cornelius tells him about his vision. And he tells Peter, we're here, we're ready to listen to what it is that God has commanded you to say. So this is where we pick it up, verses 34 of Acts 10 through 48. Then Peter began to speak to them. I truly understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. You know the message he sent to the people of Israel, preaching peace by Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. That message spread throughout Judea, beginning in Galilee after the baptism that John announced. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. How he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. We are witnesses to all that he did both in Judea and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and allowed him to appear. Not to all the people, but to us who were chosen by God as witnesses and who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one ordained by God as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him, that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still speaking, the Holy Spirit fell upon all who heard the word. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astounded that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles, for they heard them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter said, Can anyone withhold the water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? So he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, and then they invited him to stay for several days. As we think about Peter's dilemma and the turning point in the young movement of the church, let's remember a few things. God chose Israel to be the light to the nations, to bless everyone around them because they knew God. We see this in the call to Abraham, where God tells him that his descendants will be as numerous as the stars. And a covenant is made where 
the people promise to obey and God promises to be with them and to give them land. This thread of covenant runs through the entirety of scripture. And we see many times God calling the people back to himself, reminding them of the covenant, notably in Isaiah 42, where they are exhorted to put him first and bring justice to the nations. Everything culminates with the birth of Jesus, who came from the line of David to be the Messiah to bring salvation to all people. Yet someplace along the line, God's people interpreted the covenant to mean that they were his favorite, which twisted their mindset to think that they were above others. Many became filled with pride and hatred for neighboring people, and they had no use for Gentiles. God had separated them out and given them strict laws in order for them to stay close to him. One main distinction was food laws. These were mandatory, not a suggestion. And there were many, many ways they were survival and identity. That is why Peter can't understand why it seems as though God is changing the rules all of a sudden. But we have to remember in Mark 7, Jesus has an argument with the Jewish leaders where he basically tells them that all food is clean. That it's not what goes into a person like food that makes them sinful, but it's the evil that comes out of them and their attitudes and their actions that defile them. When God gives this vision of the animals, Peter doesn't even realize what prejudice he has. Along with laws about food, he had been trained to be biased against those who did not have the same special relationship with God that his group did. He was not born that way. None of us are. Religious bias among the most powerful biases in the world is incredibly dangerous. It's natural, of course, that humans gravitate towards a way of worship that they think is the most compelling and the best way of understanding who they are in relationship to their Lord. Yet, when that way becomes a source of deep pride or arrogance, when that way becomes more valued than the people around them, it becomes something opposite of what it was meant to be. It becomes something not honoring to God at all, but rather an idol of humanity's own making. Before we can even hear what Peter says, we see that he is in process of moving past the barriers of his faith community. He's in the town of Joppa because he had been called there when a woman who had died and he prays over her and she is brought back to life. And because of this, many believe in the Lord. And Peter then stays a few days on at the home of Simon the Tanner, whose job it was to make leather from animal skins. Now staying there, of course, would have been against Jewish law. Again, when Cornelius' servants arrive, Peter doesn't hesitate. He invites them to be his guests overnight, another violation of the law. And he doesn't hesitate to go into Cornelius' home, although that would also have been ritually un unacceptable. So although he goes to preach Jesus to Cornelius, it is Peter who is more greatly transformed 
by the Spirit of God in his act, in his acting and his thinking. The Roman soldier, of course, is given a new frame for his actions and a savior that he can personally know. Praise God, his life is changed. But it is a new day for the believers because Peter now sees how the identity of the church must encompass all those who would put their faith in Christ. The church would struggle with what this would mean for years. Even Peter would later make a misstep about it. But this scripture is showing us that we must learn by experience how our prejudice can get reinforced by our religious practices. I think I need to say that again. This scripture is showing us that we must learn by experience how our prejudices can get reinforced by our religious practices. And we give God praise for the Spirit of God who continues to teach us in all of our experiences. Peter says he learned two lessons here. One was that no person God made is unclean. Unclean here means common or inferior. He understood the vision God gave him only after he was invited to go to the house of a Gentile. And he realizes, ah, it's not about the food. The Lord was readying Peter's heart to extend grace to someone who was just as worthy as himself as in being welcomed into the family of God. We all come through the cross. There's no other way. We all need the redemption that only Jesus can bring. The second lesson Peter learned is how God doesn't have favorites. He has no partiality. We wonder what would have happened if Peter didn't go, if he declined the invitation. That's what Jonah did. Remember, it wasn't because Jonah didn't want to be bothered with the travel to Nineveh. It's that he hated the wickedness of the people who lived in the capital city of the Assyrian Empire. He knew that if he told them that God wanted them to repent, if he told them that God's mercy was available to them, that they would fall on their knees. He just didn't think that the Gentiles there deserved it. And if the church in Peter's time was to include whosoever would come to Jesus, Peter had to learn the lesson of how divisions block us from being the community God intends us and needs us to be. But how many divisions are there in the body of Christ today? When we talk about racism and the church, I want us to focus on our country because it's where we live and where God has called us to find unity and reconciliation every day. I'm reading a necessary and difficult book right now called The Color of Compromise by Jamar Tisby. 
It's an amazing book. It's a narrative of how Christians historically and up to present time have worked against racial justice. Honestly, it is so painful to read how in the history of our country, a majority of Christians chose not to stand up, not to show God's mercy to those who were displaced from their land, those who were enslaved from early colonial days through the Civil War, to those who have been oppressed by laws and court rulings, how they didn't always stand with those who marched for civil rights. And they didn't stand with those who have faced the systematic effects of racism for the last 400 years. So many Christians wrongly interpreted the Bible to justify slavery, to prohibit mixed race marriages, to further segregation, and to promote white supremacy in many forms. Instead of allowing God to open their eyes to the world around them, they use their religious beliefs to further their own prejudice. There have been moments that I put the book down to simply weep for the pain of what is being described. The point of this book is not to shame. The author loves the church to speak from a place of deep love so that today we can make choices the Lord would have us make. Listen to a quote from the author. Historically speaking, when faced with the choice between racism and equality, the American church has tended to practice a complicit Christianity rather than a courageous Christianity. They chose comfort over constructive conflict and in so doing created and maintained a status quo of injustice. He says that while overt acts of racism have occurred, it is often the very nice believers in Jesus who have played a major part of creating and sustaining a racist society. The Free Methodist denomination was born out of a deep conviction of racial equality, as our founder B.T. Roberts was an abolitionist in New York in the 1860s. He and others wanted to carry on the important work of John Wesley, who believed in radical action of the body of Christ to not only advocate for people of color, but also to work side by side for the cause of Christ. My friend, Trisha Wellstead, who is a pastor in our denomination, recently completed her doctoral dissertation entitled Diversity and Equity for Women and People of Color in the Wesleyan Tradition. In her work, she asserts that while Wesleyan churches, like Free Methodism, 
were propelled early to racial justice, as time went on, some of that fire for racial justice was lost. Now she cites a lot of reasons I'm going to tell you. One was because there was a turning inward and a lot of effort made to be a legitimate denomination. There was a loss, she said, of historical memory of the biblical and theological mandate of inclusion. There was a catering, she said, to social norms of the evangelical and broader culture. And all of this led to an exclusion of diverse voices in the decision-making process, which then contributed to inequitable practices in the broader church. Dr. Wellstead says that in the first 70 years of the 20th century, there was a large amount of silence. When the action did not correspond with the stated beliefs of the Free Methodist Church. And this disparity between theology and practice caused the church to lose opportunity to live into our identity and who God needed us to be. In my time as a Free Methodist, there has been a renewed diligence to live out the mandate Jesus gives the church to stand against the sin of racism. Much work has been done. There is still much work that needs to be done. Last week I told you that some people in our church wrote a stronger statement to, um, on racism for the Book of Discipline. I want to summarize the four commitments that were adopted last year. We commit to lament for the ways the church has been complicit or failed to recognize racial oppression. We commit to an attitude of ceaseless humility and self-examination for anything in us that manifests discrimination of any kind, recognizing the ease with which our own limitations can make us blind to the experiences and the interests of others. We commit to redeem processes, systems, and institutions that continue to perpetuate injustice on the basis of race or ethnicity. We commit to model racial redemption and reconciliation that we hope to see in the world where we continually proclaim the transformative victory of Jesus Christ into places of great brokenness as we look forward to the day when all people gather before the throne of God. Amen. After seeing Cornelius, Peter has to go to Jerusalem to talk to the other believers who were wondering what was going on. Many in the church criticized Peter, asking why in the world he had gone to see and to eat with Gentiles. Peter retells the story again and then asks one of, one of the most profound questions in all of scripture. 
who was I that I could hinder God? Peter, whose religious prejudice had threatened to undo him and truncate the work of the church, understood how crucial it was to listen to God about letting go of the ways his religious community had taught him to think and to act. This is our challenge today. Through the church, we have been conditioned to engage with issues of race in various ways. Some of these are productive. Some of them are tone deaf. Others are downright hurtful. Our goal as Christians should not simply be to rely on the way that things have always been done, but rather to listen to God afresh and anew every day. Through every struggle in our lives, in our church, in our country, in the ways that people are struggling all around us, we have to turn to God and say, God, where are you in this? Where do you want us to be? How do you want us to think? How do you want us to act? What is in us that is causing us to back away, causing us to be afraid, causing us to not do what it is that you, Lord, want us to do? And when he surprises us by breaking our barriers, by adjusting our mindset, by bringing us to our very knees, we have to not just rest in our comfort. We have to listen and obey. Peter inspired the believers in the early church to change how they treated a group of people. And this led to a revival of God's spirit in the church and expansion of his work. The body of Christ is meant to be an ethnically and culturally diverse community, an inclusive community of faith where we seek forgiveness for past mistakes, where we learn from one another, where we understand what it means to worship the living Savior because we are in community, so different and yet united in Him. We have to ask the Lord if there is anything in us, individually or corporately, that hinders his will for who he wants us to be as a church, as we live out the mandate of loving all people. This is our time today to live into Christ's truth, as we commit to have our theology match our practice in every way. So let us take time, a moment of silence, and ask the Lord, Lord, what is it that you are saying to me today through this powerful scripture of the early church from the lesson that Peter had to learn? Lord, what is in me that you want to transform and change? Let us pray. Thank you for listening. If you would like to learn more about the Free Methodist Church of Santa Barbara, you can visit us online at fmcsb.org. We pray this message has been a blessing to you.